Hey guys, welcome to Veritas. Uh, great to see you all. Uh, it's fun to start off a new semester. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Kyle Richter. I'm one of the pastors at The Crossing and help lead Veritas, our college ministry. Um, I'm going to get us started. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and then um, we'll jump in. Jesus, thank you so much that we have a place on campus at the University of Missouri to come and to hear about you, to learn about you, and to worship you. And God, we pray that tonight we would do that, that you would open up the eyes and the ears of our hearts, God, that we would know you more, that we would know how to live for you. Jesus, we pray that tonight would be for your glory, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Our choices in life matter, right? How we live, it's, it's really important, isn't it? If you know me, you know that um, I love to read biographies. And so recently I picked up a, a, a book called Bitter Brew. It's the rise and fall of Anheuser-Busch and America's Kings of Beer. It's a fascinating book because it looks at how the Bush family turned a little brewery in St. Louis into a multi-billion dollar international corporation. And it's also about how Budweiser eventually became known around the world as the king of beers. Now, in case you're wondering, the book isn't only about beer, and it's also not just about American commerce. Front and center throughout the book are the Bush family. As you read this book, you start to see the Bush family, their enduring family dynasty, their wealth, their power. And especially as you read, you see the Bush family dysfunction. You see, like all families, the Bushes had their fair share of problems, especially August Jr. or or Gussie, as he was called. Here's a, a photo of him behind me. You see, Gussie was the king of AB. He was the president and CEO that brought Anheuser-Busch to prominence between the 1940s and 70s. It was under his watch that AB became the largest brewery in the world. The Clydesdales that we've all come to, to know and love, that they became an American icon under Gussie's leadership. Grant's Farm, several of you have been to. Maybe if you live in St. Louis, you've gone. It became a St. Louis landmark under Gussie. And in 1953, Gussie even purchased, for some of you, your beloved St. Louis Cardinals. You see, there's no doubt that Gussie Bush was wildly successful. He was the king of one of the most prominent businesses in America. But all of his wealth and power, it came at a cost. And the majority of that cost, it it fell on the shoulders of his family. In a St. Louis Post-Dispatch, a newspaper in St. Louis, in an interview, Gussie, Gussie said this. He said this. He said, my happiness is my business. I eat it. I sleep it. I dream about it. My family, my family comes second to my love of my business. See, Gussie's family and really everything else, because in reality, Gussie was living primarily for himself first, his career first, his future first, his wealth first, his fame first. In many ways, Gussie Bush was the king. He was living as if he were the king of his own life. 
And all of these choices, they, they leave his family in shambles. He was married four times, most agreeing that life with him was unbearable. He had 11 children, some of which claimed they never really had a dad. He wasn't around. He wasn't present. He wasn't that interested. His son, August III, who would eventually become another king of A.B., said he was more comfortable referring to his father as his boss instead of his dad. Their dysfunction reached its peak in the 1970s when August III, his son, led a boardroom coup and literally forced his father out of his job as CEO. Now, as you can imagine, Gussie was indignant, right? So much so that that he called a family meeting and, and he went around to everybody in his family and he forced them to choose sides. You're either with my son or you're with me. And as you can imagine, the family never really recovered from that kind of meeting. In fact, as the book goes on, the dysfunction gets worse. Why do I, why do I share that story? Well, I share it because I think it draws out something really important, something that I said earlier, and that's this. Our choices in life matter. Your choices right now as college students, how you live your life, it really matters. I wonder, how often do you stop to think about this? How, how often do you think about how your choices, how often do you think about how our choices, even the, the seemingly small and insignificant ones, how they affect the trajectory of our lives over time? Do you, do you ever pause and consider how the choices that we make affect other people? So for instance, how, how do the people that you choose to spend time with affect the ways that you live? How might the decisions that, that you make on the weekends affect your future spouse? How might the choices that you make when nobody is looking affect the person that you're becoming? Or maybe to to put it a little bit differently, how have someone else's choices affected you? What did they say? What did they do? What do you wish they would have done? What do you wish they wouldn't have done? See, whether we realize it or not, our choices really do matter. How we live our life really is important. And for better or worse, whether we realize it or not, our choices don't just affect us. They affect the people around us. And often those people are some of the people that we love the most. You see, one of the the, the prevailing messages of our culture, especially in college, is that you and I should live however we want. And so the banner of our time, in a certain sense, is live whatever way you think is best. Be the king of your own life. Because the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is your happiness. So do whatever you want. Now, I'll admit, that that sounds really good, doesn't it? Pursue what makes you happy. Pursue what feels good. That message is, is pretty attractive. But here's the problem. This is what, what, what people that love to, to say those kinds of things and to propagate those kinds of ideas, this is what they don't often tell us. Living however we want, doing whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, 
living as if we are the king of our own lives, it often leads to heartache and dysfunction and disaster. Just ask Gussie Bush and the rest of his family. The Bushes, though, they're they're not the only ones familiar with the heartache and the dysfunction and the disaster that comes from living however they wanted. This is a theme that we see in the Bible as well. So tonight, we're we're starting the semester with a new sermon series, and and this semester, we're going to look together at the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and I'm really excited. I, I love the Old Testament. I love these books. But 1st and 2nd Samuel are full of people who knew heartache, full of people who knew and experienced dysfunction and disaster, and mainly because of the choices that they made. And so as we read these books together, one of the ways, or one of the things that we're going to see is that in many ways, these things present us with a choice, a choice that I want all of us to wrestle with this semester. Who do we want to be the king of our lives? See, Samuel is about the kingship that Israel experienced, but it's also about the king that Israel needed. And even though it was written thousands of years ago, it's about the king that you and I need as well. Now, because a lot of us probably haven't read Samuel before, let me, let me give just a little bit of context. First and second Samuel fall within a section of the Old Testament known as the historical books. And we say the historical books because the, the 12 books that comprise this section of the Old Testament, they cover about a thousand years of Israel's history. Israel, if you remember, is the specific group of people that God chose in the Old Testament to be his agents of blessing in the world. And in other words, God's people, of all people, were supposed to live in a way that brought about love and justice and mercy in the world. And sadly, as we'll see, Israel falls very short of this mission. I said that we're starting a new series through 1st and 2nd Samuel, but tonight we're actually not going to look in either of those books. We're going to focus primarily on one verse from the book of Judges. The book of Judges is just a couple books before Samuel, and the reason that we're going to look at it, at this last verse, this one verse, is that because in many ways, this single verse sets the entire stage for 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so here it is, the last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. At this time in history, God's people didn't have a king. In fact, they had never had one. But it wasn't because God didn't want one. Actually, kingship was always God's intention for his people. As as God himself is king over all creation, so too would he eventually establish human kings to lead and rule his people in righteousness. And these kings, they were to be concrete, flesh and blood examples of who God was and what his mission in the world was all about. And so the hope was that the more you got to know the human king, the more you got to know God, the true king. Now here's something that's pretty interesting. In the last five chapters of the book of Judges, this this same phrase is repeated four times. Look with me, Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Judges 18, 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
Judges 19.1, in those days when there was no king in Israel. Judges 21.25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Why the repetition? See, biblical authors love to use repetition to stress a point. And in this case, the point that the author wants us to get is this. Things are bad. Things are really bad. Why? Well, look at the second half of that last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Why? Why were things bad? Because everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What's wrong with that? Well, for Israel, it led to disaster. See, we don't have time to look at them tonight, but these last several chapters of Judges are absolutely gut-wrenching because we see up close and personal Israel's downward spiral, God's people's downward spiral and moral chaos and destruction. And so by the end of Judges, Israel had disobeyed God in almost every way imaginable. They're engaging in religious idolatry. They, they worship other gods. They've become functional moral relativists. They decide what is right and wrong, what's good and bad for themselves. They don't listen to God. They ignore him. They pursue happiness apart from him. In many ways, they're living as if they are the king of their own lives. You see, our, our choices, how we live, it really matters. That was true for Israel, too. Israel did what was right in their own eyes, and the consequence, it brought disaster. And so by the end of Judges, God's people are involved in all sorts of terrible evil, some of the worst atrocities that you'll see in all of the Bible, oppression, rape, murder, massacre, abduction. It's a shockingly, and I mean it, it's a shockingly bleak picture of what life is like when God's people choose to live as, if, as they see fit instead of living under the rule of God. I wonder, though, how many of us in this room, certainly there, there are many of us in our culture, many in college, that read or hear a statement like, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and, and they say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, isn't that what we should be doing? And, and the same people might even say that, that actually anything that tells us to the contrary, well, that is, it feels like a straitjacket. And, and, and honestly, this is why a lot of people ultimately reject Christianity. It, it feels too restricting to them. Tim Keller, he's, he's a, a former pastor at a church in New York, and um, he's an author and a seminary professor. He's a dude that we love here around Veritas. And he talks about this idea in a couple of his books, Reason for God and, and Making Sense of God. And to illustrate this point, he shares a, a quote from someone that he was talking with in New York, and, and this is what that person said. A, a one-truth-fits-all approach to Christianity is just too confining. The Christians I know don't seem to have the freedom to think for themselves. I believe each individual must determine truth for him or herself. Early, early 20th century social activist Emma Goldman, she, she puts it like this. She says, Christianity is the leveler of the human race, the breaker of man's will to dare and to do. It's an iron net 
a straight jacket, which does not let him expand or grow. You see what they're saying? They're saying that, in other words, every person should have the right to do their own thing, to live however they want. And we shouldn't criticize what other people think or how they live because what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, truth itself, well, it's really just relative to the individual. Just think about it for a second. We, we, we live in a time in history. We live in a, a Western culture, a college context that puts a premium on self-expression and self-glorification. So what's right for you doesn't have to be right for me, and that's okay. In fact, it's, it's good, people would say. And so we embrace ideologies and phrases like, whatever works for you, man. Hey, you do you. Or, or said a little differently, who are you to tell me how to live my life? You see, what is increasingly ingrained in us is that we should have the freedom to create our own meaning and purpose in life. We should have the freedom to do whatever we want. We should have the freedom to do whatever makes us happy. We should have the freedom to do whatever makes us feel good. Here's a story to help prove the point. Um, Several years ago, there was a a student involved in a Veritas small group, and and she was going through a a, a really difficult time in her life. She was going through... um, a hard breakup with her boyfriend. And to be honest, as it kind of went on as a result, she started tailspinning. And she started tailspinning into despair and eventually a season of, of pretty intense depression. It, it, was, it was bad. And so eventually this girl, she, she met with a counselor on campus to get some help. And after sharing what was going on, the breakup, the despair, the depression... You know what that counselor told her? Uh, this is what she said. After, after hearing about all that was going on in this girl's life, she said, okay, here's what you need to do. What you need to do is you need to go out this weekend and you need to have sex with a couple different guys. Because I think if you have sex with a couple different guys, you're going to eventually forget about your boyfriend and you can move on and leave him in the past. That's what she said to him. Now hear me say this. The point of sharing that is not to throw any particular counselor or any particular counseling center under the bus because this counselor legitimately thought, genuinely thought that they were giving helpful advice. But the point that I want to stress, though, is that the counselor's professional advice, it exuded this mentality of our culture that I've been talking about. Go and do something that makes you feel good. Go do something that will make you happy. It's the ultimate expression of individualism that our cultural moment so highly values. Now I should stop for a second. I I want you to hear me say this. Individualism, individual freedoms in our society, they've done incredibly good things, right? I mean, in many ways, I know we have a long way to go, but in many ways, the society that we live in is far more just and fair than in years past especially in comparison to other parts of the world. So not everything about individualism is bad. But as it relates to Christianity, many people like to claim that that Christianity is supposedly a a limit to our personal growth and potential because it, it constrains our freedom to choose our own beliefs and practices. 
And so the freedom to choose our own moral standards is, is considered a necessity to some for being fully human. And they would go on to say that, that these are seemingly self-evident truths that shouldn't be questioned. But, but, but here's the deal. It, it, just to be clear, if we embrace this, if we embrace that kind of thinking, what it means is that absolute right and wrong are dethroned. Absolute right and wrong are dethroned in our lives. You see, this pursuit of, of total freedom, it means that in the end, we can just really do whatever we want. Of course, we'll be tolerant. Of course, we'll listen to others, hear what they have to say. But ultimately, we become the desires of truth. And so when it comes to my feelings and my assessment of life and my desires and my opinions and sensitivities and my experiences and my rights, well, others can't tell me how to live my life. Morality is relative because individualism is supreme. Everyone has a right to define what is right and wrong for him or herself. Now, now here, here's an honest question in response to that. Does anyone actually believe that? Or better yet, does anyone actually live this out consistently? You see, think about it for a second. Is there anyone that, that someone somewhere in the world is doing right now that you think is wrong, regardless of, of how that person feels about it? Is there anyone in the world right now doing something wrong in your mind, regardless of what they think or feel about it? Well, if the answer is yes, if, if so, then then doesn't it mean that, that you do believe there is some kind of moral reality that exists regardless of, of how individuals think and feel? Where does that sense of right and wrong, where does that sense of just and unjust, where does that sense of good and evil, where does it come from? I mean, if it's just a human construct, something that, that we human beings have made up for ourselves, then, then it's meaningless, Right? I mean, we have no grounds then to suggest that the tyrants of the world are evil. We probably can't even call them tyrants because somebody could easily respond, well, that's just what you think. That's just what you believe. That's, that's not what I think. That's not what I believe. If morality is a, a human construct, then we have no grounds to call for the protection of, of immigrants fleeing from a war-torn, famished nation. Someone could easily respond. Well, who are you to tell me that I should care for my international neighbor? I just, I'm just worried about myself. You see, the reality is that if we want good, if we want justice, if we want morality, then we need something beyond ourselves to define it, to justify it, to ground it, to prove it. That very reality forces us to choose some kind of king, something else to define good and evil. Because I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm smart enough to know that I can't simply trust myself and what I think. Justice needs a king far bigger than me. It needs a king that transcends the individualism of our day. See, God is saying here in the Bible that bad things happen, disaster, dysfunction happens when, when we try to live as if we are the king of our own lives, when we live contrary to what God wants, when we do what's right in our own eyes instead of what's right in his eyes. And so let me, let me ask you a, a question. 
A question I myself has been wrestling with lately. What ways, what, what attitudes, what parts of your life, opinions, perspectives, are you doing what is right in your own eyes? How is that going for you? Honestly. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know what, it's, it's actually going okay. Maybe you're thinking of someone you know and, and you're, you're thinking, it seems to be going all right for them. It might be. But here's the deal. Someday your life, someday their life, all of our lives crash on the rocks of reality. And whether we know it or not, we all live inside of God's universe. And when we break God's intention for how we should live, we shouldn't be surprised that it eventually breaks us. Then what? You see, like I said earlier, we all have choices to make. We all have choices to make about how we want to live, who we want to be, who or what we want to worship. You might not think about it like that. You might not call it that, but, but everybody worships something. And who or what we worship affects how we live our lives. David Foster Wallace, uh, the, the postmodern novelist, he's, he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College in, in 2005. And listen to what he says. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, who or what we worship shapes what we love and how we live our lives. David Foster Wallace, he, he's not a Christian at all. That, none of what he said has anything to do in his mind with Christianity. He's simply re reporting the facts of human nature and experience. And he knows that we can't escape it. Everybody worships something. What about you? you're honest with yourself, what is it that you're worshiping? You see, every single one of us is looking for something or someone to be the king of our hearts and lives. At the risk of completely killing the moment, here's some, some proof. I, I recently came across a Taylor Swift song from her newest album. I'm not sure if that's cool or sad. Um, Regardless, it caught my attention. And so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to do something that I've never done before. I want to listen to a Taylor Swift song in the middle of a sermon. And so here's what I want to do. I, I know some of you probably already know this song, and you've got it memorized forward and backwards. Try the best you can to not sing out loud so that we can, we can all hear it. And, and what I want to do is I want to listen to the first minute or so of this song. And as we're listening, try to pay attention. Try to pay attention to what she says. Every single one of us is looking for something or someone to be the king of our hearts 
in our lives. Listen to what Taylor Swift says. Let's listen now. I'm perfectly fine. I live on my own. I made up my mind. I'm better off being alone. We met a few weeks ago. Now you try on calling me, baby, like trying on clothes. You to me, I'm her American queen, and you move to me like I'm a Motown B, and we rule the kingdom inside my room. Kiss all the boys in their expensive cars, the Range Rovers and the Jaguars. Never took me quite where you do. And all I want you are the one I have been waiting for, king of my heart. Body and soul, oh, and all I want, you're all I want. I'll never let you go, king of my heart. Body and soul, oh, and all I want. Did you catch the chorus? Here it is, here it is, if, if, if you didn't. Here's, here's one line that I want you to hear. And all at once, you are the one I have been waiting for, king of my heart, body and soul. See, clearly for, for Taylor Swift, the king of her heart is a guy. I, I don't really, to be honest, I don't really care about Taylor Swift. That's not the point that I'm making. The point that I'm making is that we're all, every single one of us, we're all longing for some kind of king. We're all longing for some kind of king, even Taylor Swift. As the music team comes up, I'll close with this thought. Israel's dysfunction, the consequences of their choices, their disaster, it, it should force all of us to look at ourselves in the mirror. And that's because in many ways, you and I, we're no different. We, we too far too often do what's right in our own eyes, not in God's eyes. That's all of us. And though we are most certainly the problem, we ourselves cannot be the solution. Just as Israel did, we too, we need to search for a better king. And so as we begin a new semester, I, I want you to ask yourself, I want you to leave tonight wrestling with the question, what kind of king do you want to follow? What kind of king do you want to follow this semester? What kind of king do you want to follow this year? What kind of king do you want to follow the rest of your life? See, I'd like to suggest to you that there is only one king worth following, the true king, the greatest king, King Jesus. Jesus is a king who is just, who is right, who is true. And Jesus is a king who promises to bring goodness and human flourishing to those who follow him. I didn't say this earlier, but the name of that Taylor Swift song is, is King of My Heart. And in just a second, we're going to stand up and we're going to sing a very different version of King of My Heart. And instead of singing to, to some other king, to, to a guy or a relationship or whatever it is, we're going to sing to the true king, King Jesus. Let's do it now.